Good morning, 12, and welcome to the Seahawks 360 podcast, a sports ethos production where we look at the Seahawks from every angle every week. I am your host, Candace Hagens. You can find me on Twitter at CandaceH901. You can find the show at Ethos Seahawks. Make sure to look us up. As always, it is a pleasure and a privilege to talk Hawks with you. We got some breaking news to discuss. And on top of that, we have a very special segment created and inspired by a 710 ESPN Seattle radio show called Parsing Pete, where we'll uncover and try to translate what it is that Pete Carroll is thinking. It's an exciting show today. A lot to get into. So let's do it. Let's get into our breaking news. Earlier this week, the Seattle Seahawks signed wide receiver Marquise Goodwin. The former Bears wide receiver is coming off of a rough year with the Chicago Bears. He is most notably known for his successful days with the 49ers. His best year was having a career-best 56 passes caught for 963 yards. Marquise Goodwin is 31 years old and will add a veteran presence to the wide receiver room that is increasingly becoming younger and younger. In fact, the only other veteran besides Marquise Goodwin would be Tyler Lockett. DK Metcalf is still establishing himself and he's more veteran than a lot of the newer wide receivers that have been signed. But um, I think that's the value that Marquise Goodwin will be able to bring to the team. He will push D. Eskridge for the third wide receiver slot. And I think that's good. D. Eskridge, I think, needs a little bit more competition to push him in, in the right direction. You might ask, why would the Seahawks sign a 31-year-old wide receiver at this point? And what's important to keep in mind is that if there's a reason that Marquise Goodwin is going to make the 53-man roster, it's going to be because of his elite speed. It was a while ago, but this is the same guy who ran a 4-2-7 speed at the combine. Um, this is 40-speed. Amazing. And he's got track and field background, so his speed is extraordinary. And he could be a great asset to the to the wide receiver rooms. In the wide receiver room that's already filled with a lot of speed with DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, it'll be interesting to see how Goodwin falls into the mix. I personally see this as an interesting move because I think it means that they'll still be passing the ball to have three wide receivers of that speed on the roster. I think implies that they plan on doing more 11 personnel. 11 personnel is when there's three wide receiver sets, one tight end and one running back on the field. The Seahawks last year ran 60% of their plays under 11 personnel. I don't, no, if they plan to keep that same amount of you think with a quarterback situation that they would sort of reduce down on that. But this move implies different. It, this move implies that they still plan to pass the ball. And even if it's not pass heavy, that they at least plan on making explosive plays, a big part of the offense, which makes sense. Pete Carroll is a huge advocate for running game and explosive plays. That's how he wants his offense ran. And it looks like they're putting themselves in a position personnel-wise in order to be able to do that. Now, if there's a reason that Marquise Goodwin is not going to make this team, it's that 
career-wise, he has a really low catch radius. In fact, even in his year best, when he had 963 yards, almost a thousand yard season, he still managed to catch only 56 of his 105 targets. That was a 53% catch rate, which is relatively inefficient. It took him 105 targets to catch 56. And that, that wasn't an operation. That was his best year. He averages career wise about a 50% catch radius. Keep in mind for context that DK Metcalf is often, he often frustrates the fans with his ability when he drops balls. Um, he doesn't have the best hands. That's not DK's, that's not DK's best trait. He's working on it, but it's a work in progress. DK Metcalf's catch radius, his career catch radius to this point, or his catch percentage is 60%. So that's dramatically worse. It doesn't matter. The Seahawks fans get upset with DK. As that's worse from from Goodwin and there's no indications that that's going to improve because that's just been the case throughout his entire career he's just he drops balls he just does and so I if there's a reason why he doesn't make it through camp it'd be that would be my guess is that despite his speed he's just not reliable enough as a, as a pass catcher and the offense decides to go in a different direction give those snaps give those reps to one of the younger players so we'll see I can really see it going either way. I'd, I'd really like it if Goodwin can make his way onto the 53-man roster. But if there is a concern of mine outside of his age, it really is just that not, not only his low production recently, and he has had low production, he's only had two touchdowns in the past two years um, or three years because he took off a year because of COVID. You know, that's a concern. But even if he were to have some kind of revitalization, it concerns me that even in the best year that he had, he still was very efficient, inefficient as a catcher. In other news, OTAs, otherwise known as organized team activities, started this week for the Seattle Seahawks and for a lot of NFL teams. A few takeaways, things to pay attention to. Jordan Brooks officially has taken over the uh, play calling duties, defensive play calling for Bobby Wagner. He'll be embracing that role. He talked a little bit about it in a press conference interview after uh, after OTAs on Monday. And he's had experience. I, I feel confident that he'll be able to take on that role and do it well. He obviously won't have the experience of that Bobby has in terms of recognizing routes and um, recognizing plays, but He's done play calling all through his football life. In fact, the only time that he was not the defensive play caller was his first two years in Seattle. So he's embracing a role that he's already done before. He did all through high school and through college, and he's got the leadership to do it. This is a guy who at Texas Tech was one of the five captains, and they had they called it a captain circle. And so he was a leader on that team. And if that wasn't enough to convince you, it, just listen to go back and listen to his press conference interview. He talked a lot about how the number one thing that he took away from Bobby Wagner during his time there was how Bobby led by example. And I could just see it in his demeanor. His posture was different. Uh, he was a little bit more intentional about his words. I felt in his interview, I could just see that he really was taking on that leadership role and looking to lead by example. I think that's one of the best things that Jordan Brooks can do. He seems like that kind of guy that can can be a, a quiet 
sort of leader. He, he doesn't appear to me to be very vocal, but he's got this intensity about him, this focus about him, this drive about him. And he's very talented that I think will get him very far. And he will probably be able to lead in a similar way and make it his own. But I feel very confident that Jordan Brooks will be able to handle that role. In other news, it came out in OTAs that Chris Carson still does not have an update on his neck. As you might remember, Chris Carson, running back for the Seattle Seahawks, had a neck surgery uh, towards the end of the season. And he had a chronic neck neck issue really he suffered with for uh, most of last season. He's had the neck surgery. They said it's successful, but Pete Carroll remains very vague, very general about his comments on Chris Carson. When asked about Chris Carson's status, he'd said that Chris Carson was in town, so he was in Seattle, but that he had they had no new report. They expected more information about the status of his health later on this week. We have yet to hear anything to the point of this recording. I don't particularly find that to be encouraging news, but see, Pete Carroll has been very vague and very um, just not optimistic for as optimistic as Pete Carroll has been. He has not been about Chris Carson. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. In other news, Rashad Penny has a slight hamstring injury, so he did not participate in OTAs. He was on the field, but he did not participate in any activities because he's resting up from a slight hamstring issue. And I, I'm sort of conflicted about this. I don't want to hit the panic button because it's May. And so a hamstring issue by no means will affect his ability to play when the season starts. I guess the reason why it's a concern for me is not just because Rajah Penny continues to have these constant soft tissue injuries, but because I guess my main concern would just be that because it's May, there shouldn't have, he shouldn't have been doing an intense amount of work. I mean, maybe some light workouts, but to this point, I wouldn't think that his activity would be very strenuous, which just makes me concerned for when he does go to football activities, will he be able to stay healthy. That's always been the question with Rashad Penny. We now have seen that when he is healthy, he is extremely talented. I don't know if the Seahawks need to get uh, Adrian Peterson back, but that seems to have put a fire under Rashad Penny, and that was his healthiest period. Those five games he put, he, he uh, the last five games of his season were historically good, and he ended up having the most yards per carry of any running back at the end of the season because of those five games. But if he can't stay healthy, it just makes you glad that the Seahawks only did a one-year deal on him. To be determined, it's too early to hit the panic button. So if you're hitting the panic button, I encourage you to take a step back, realize it's just May, and that he, he will likely be fine going into the season. But I, 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 I would be remiss to not acknowledge the legitimate concern that comes with hearing Rashad Penny and injury in the same sentence. Other notable, noticeable absence or other notable absence rather that were from OTAs, DK Metcalf did not participate. Trey Brown did not participate. Jamal Adams and Quandre Diggs, they're all still recovering from their various injuries. They are expected to be able to participate in training camp. So that should not impact their training camp. Remember that uh, OTAs are voluntary. Voluntary. They do not have to uh, show up. They do, they do not have to participate. 
So a lot of veterans tend to take this time to rest. There was a fair amount of veterans based off of the access that the media was given to the Seahawks OTAs. Fair amount of access uh, or fair amount of veterans that were there, Tyler Lockett, Will Disley, at least on offense. I noticed that a lot of the offensive veterans were there. And they're not many, <laughs> but they were there. And I make sense because they're new two new court quarterbacks, Geno, Drew Locke are in a quarterback competition. And the more veterans you can have out on the field, the better indicators you can get for gauging sort of the direction that they should go. And last but not least, this is a small but worth mentioning note. LJ Collier, who has struggled mightily with the Seattle Seahawks during his tenure, has officially been moved to exclusively a defensive tackle. LJ Collier noticeably added some weight. He's added some weight back to get a little bit thicker to better fall into that role, but he no longer is doing any reps with the defensive ends. He is a defensive tackle strictly, so that's an interesting move. LJ Collier at this point has had three career sacks in three years, and so the Seahawks, I'm sure, are trying their best to get the best out of him, see what he looks like in this new defensive system. I don't know if ultimately he'll be able to make a difference. He struggled to get on the field. He was a healthy scratch most of the game, most of the year. And when he did get on the field, it it didn't look good for him. So he'll have some tough competition. He's definitely, LJ Collier is climbing a uphill battle because he's going going up against the likes of Shelby Harris and Quentin Jefferson, guys that I think are much more equipped and much more fit for that role. I, my recommendation would be for them to cut LJ Collier, but it's been that way since last year. They could not cut him last year because they would actually lose money by cutting him. But this year, I'm not sure if he makes it. I'm not sure if it's worth him having a roster spot, but Pete Carroll has been known to stick to his guns and really invest in these guys to the end. We've seen it over and over again. And so I can see a scenario where despite LJ's lack of production, he continues to stay on this team and just, is a healthy scratch like he was most of last season. We'll see if this new defensive tackle role will better suit him and his skill set. I'm doubtful, but it would be great to get some production out of LJ Collier and have sort of a Rashad Penny effect for your first round pick who seemed like he was a bust up until the last year of his contract. Well, that's all we have for breaking news. You can always count on Seahawks 360 to give you the latest news and updates on your Seattle Seahawks. As I mentioned before, we have a very special segment. If any of you listen to Seattle Sports Radio, you might have been familiar with the show Danny Angelon. Give them a shout out. They have inspired this version of a segment we will call Parsing Pete. And essentially, we're just going to talk through some of the press conferences because Pete Carroll, let's be honest, can be sort of hard to figure out or make out. He's really good at coach speak and he sort of has his own unique way of answering questions. So to get a little bit of insight as to, as to what Pete Carroll might really be thinking, let's get into our next segment. Ever wonder what's really going on in the mind of head coach Pete Carroll? The answer to that is Yes. Do you sometimes have more questions than answers after press conferences? Why would I tell you that? I don't know that. Well, we've got your breakdown right here. It's time for Parsing Pete. Well, that was fun. Hey, 
Hey, Pete, will the players who had surgery over the offseason be participating at camp, like DK Metcalf, Trey Brown, Jamal Adams? Are they here for OTAs? Um, no, those those guys won't make it, and they'll be here on the uh, for the most part. Give each guy a chance to do what he's doing here, but they've got they're on their own program to get right, and and uh, so by the uh, the mini camp that we have, those guys will be here, and uh, and we'll you know we'll take the next step with those guys. But right now they they're not able to do the stuff that we're doing out here. All right, so not only are those guys not available during OTAs, but temper your expectations that they they may not be able to participate in the mandatory mini camp. If they do participate, they'll be very limited. And the reason being is because they're still in rehab. So like Pete Carroll said, they're still in their programs, which means essentially they're still rehabbing, right? And even when they come to mandatory minicamp, more than likely they'll probably be doing more conditioning than anything else to sort of get back into the swing of things. At some point, they may be able to participate maybe towards the end, but I'd be surprised for a lot of those guys like your DK Metcalfs and Quandre Diggs, especially who got hurt later in the year. And this may sound like it's bad news. This may sound like it's something that you don't want to hear, but keep in mind, this is really on par. Everything is on schedule, so don't panic just because they're not participating in OTAs right now because they might not be participating very much at all, if at all, in the mandatory minicamp. Everything's on schedule. The timeline here for training camp is late July to early August. And my thinking behind why they're not going to be able to do much at the at the mandatory minicamp is in big part because Mandatory minicamp is June 14th. That's like two weeks away. And Pete Carroll said at the end of that clip that they wouldn't have been able to do any of the activities that those guys were doing now. And they're essentially doing glorified walkthroughs at this point. And so if they weren't be able to, if they wouldn't be able to participate in glorified walkthroughs, that means conditioning will be imperative and of course obviously finishing their rehab programs. I think the optimistic time frame is for them to complete their rehab programs in time for mandatory minicamp so that they can work on the conditioning, building themselves back up towards training camp. That would still give them well over a month to build back into to slowly gradually prepare their bodies for training camp which in and of itself is a preparation for real life football. So I would not panic just because they are not participating in OTAs, just because you very well may not see them participate in the, in the mini camp or the mandatory mini camp coming up June 14th. Everything is on time. One thing to keep in mind is that a lot of these injuries happened late in the year. Quandre Diggs, the very last game, DK Metcalf had an off season surgery. Trey Brown got hurt later in the year. And so a lot of these injuries, even Jamal Adams, so a lot of these injuries took place late in the year. I think they probably will be participating right now if the injuries had happened earlier in the season, but it's just a timing thing. Everything is still okay. But what P. Carroll is not saying here that you might keep in mind is that they will probably be limited in many, many camp as well. But they're on track for training camp. So we got a couple of P. Carroll clips for our next topic. One, you'll hear the question and then you'll hear Pete's answer. And the next one, the question was sort of blurry. So I'll just sort of kind of translate for you. Pete was asked directly about Drew Locke and how he was coming along 
and OTAs. So the question was on Drew Locke, and keep that in mind as you hear Pete's answer in the second clip. We'll talk about it in a second. You, the, the first week with the with the veterans, the, the quarterbacks, Drew, and them. What, what did you see out of Seattle? Um, that they really are really focused to, to show well. You know, they, these guys understand what's at stake and, and uh, the, the comp of it all, and, and so they were really tuned in. Um, I mean, they're giving everything they got, everything they were doing. You know, from the communication part of it, um, they're studying extra. They're getting in early. They're you know they're they're trying to make sure that they p put them themselves in the best position. It's it's really obvious. So uh, uh, Gino has come back. You know, he, like we said, he has so much command of what we're doing that he just uh, automatically is ahead. And so um, and he's he's trying to ride that. You know, and build on that. So um, I'm, I'm I'm proud of the way he's taking to it. Um, he's he's right with us. Um, you know, Gino really has the package nailed. You know, and so I, I get I have that to gauge him on. And so he's hanging with G uh, throughout all of this, and uh, we're we're not holding anything back. We really have just unloaded the the, the installation at this time. He's doing well. If you pay attention in both of those clips, P. Carroll emphasizes more than anything playbook knowledge, and specifically he emphasizes Gino's playbook knowledge. You notice how I mentioned in the second clip. Pete Carroll was asked about Drew Locke, but you wouldn't really be able to know that off top in hearing Pete Carroll's answer because though he was asked about Drew Locke, he really talked about Geno and once again his command of the playbook and then he compared how Drew Locke was doing to Geno. That means that Geno still very much has a hold on the quarterback competition. Now, I know a lot of you do not want to hear that, and I understand that Geno is a very, very boring brand of football. In fact, probably the most boring brand of football that you could watch is what Geno Smith is. And if the Seahawks are going to lose, I understand a lot of the 12s would prefer to at least be entertained. I do understand that sentiment. So for you guys, I will say... I don't think that means that the quarterback competition is by any means over, but I will say that Gina, that Pete Carroll has made it clear that he prefers experience and knowledge over just sheer throws or arm power. One thing to pay attention to is the fact that if you follow the Seahawks on social media, you'll see a lot of great throws that Drew Locke has made to various receivers, how to lock it, etc., but when Pete was asked about how Drew Locke had been doing, he didn't mention his throws or his upside. He strictly just talked about his level of knowledge and experience, which to me says that's not something he's going to be looking at. And that, well, honestly, if that's not what Pete Carroll's looking at, it'll put Drew at a disadvantage. He will have to truly show command over the playbook and expertise and knowledge. He has had experience under his belt, so he's very capable of doing that. That's not to say that he can't take command of this competition by any means. I heard from various sources in Seahawks media that's, that Geno threw a pretty head-scratching interception in practice. And Pete Carroll hates turnovers. We all know that. So it's that's a point towards Drew Locke if Geno's going to continue to do that then he's going to give the job away if nothing else to Drew Locke so that'll be monitored but I think now that he at that Pete Carroll based on his most recent comments was which was the second clip about Drew Locke Drew Locke has officially gone through the installation process with the playbook I'm hoping that we'll get more comments or more thoughts from Pete Carroll about 
the actual football aspects of it. Now, if he feels like both quarterbacks have a good grasp on the playbook, that's my that's my hope. I would like to hear Pete Carroll's thoughts really on Drew Locke as a quarterback and not just comparing him to Geno Smith all the time. So we'll see. I do have hope. I'm optimistic that we'll at least get more commentary that will give us a direction one way or the other on where Pete Carroll may be landing in terms of who he wants to be starting week one. And I'll throw this out there. I know a lot of you are holding out for the Baker Mayfield train and understandably so. I feel personally that the Browns are going to have to either pay a substantial amount of Baker Mayfield's contract or cut him. We'll see. But I think that the Browns don't have any leverage in any situation with any teams and no teams seem to be willing to do the Browns any favors because no teams are happy about the fully guaranteed contract that they just gave to Deshaun Watson, Watson, which will change the quarterback landscape for the entire NFL. So ultimately, all I have to say this, Baker will likely be cut or traded and have his salary uh, compensated for at the end of the day. But even if you are holding out hope for Baker, I don't I, I would also want to temper expectations for that because I think the Seahawks would be interested. They are all for competition and Baker has arguably a higher upside, but definitely a higher floor than Geno Smith and Drew Locke combined. We'll see. But I think I think he has a higher floor just because Drew Locke, while he has upside, has a really low floor. But I think even if they do trade for Baker, I would not assume that he just gets the starting job. I think Baker will have to come in and earn it just like everybody else would. It The longer that time goes without Baker being on the roster, the less likely I think he will be to start. And so I think if he ends up a Seahawk, it's most likely not because they traded for him. More than likely, it's because they that the Browns decided to cut Baker Mayfield. And Baker decided to sign with the Seahawks. I say that because experience and knowledge of the playbook is a top priority for Pete Carroll. He's made that clear. Baker will not have that in their system. And so Baker will be at a disadvantage, which to me says they're not going to trade for a quarterback that they're not willing to automatically start. And I don't think they'd be automatically willing to start Baker Mayfield at this point in the offseason. So even if Baker starts, it could be even if Baker is is a Seattle Seahawk, I think you could see some time pass before they actually give the reins over to Baker Mayfield. I think ultimately he probably towards the end of the season, they'll give him some more playtime, incorporate him more, and he'll probably would win that job out. But you won't hear many people saying this. But I'm just I'm basing this solely upon the comments of Pete Carroll and his emphasis on playbook knowledge and experience in the system. He seems to emphasize that and to prioritize that over everything. And to the dis disappointment of many fans, that could potentially mean they're out on Baker altogether. Pete Carroll was asked about if they're will if they're looking at trading for a veteran quarterback, and he basically said no. I think that's because of what what I'm talking about right now. So even if you are holding out hope for Baker, don't expect him to come in and start because you just have to look at what Pete Carroll values. You can disagree with it. You can hate it. I understand. I understand why you would. But I have to put that out there that this applies not just to the quarterbacks 
on the team right now, but could be relevant for quarterbacks potentially to come in the team in the future. Speaking of additions to the team, K.J. Wright throughout the offseason has expressed several times through several, several media interviews that he desires to be a Seattle Seahawk again. That, in fact, if it's not Seattle, he will retire is what K.J. Wright has said. So, P. Carroll, what do you think about the possibility of K.J. Wright coming back to the team? I love K.J. I've already talked to him about, about stuff um, for the future and all that. Um, I, I did hear that he talked about playing, and we've, we've already talked about that. Translation, there's no chance that K.J. Wright is coming back to the Seahawks. And that's unfortunate because K.J. is one of the most beloved Seahawks in recent Seattle history. But here's the reality. If there was a chance they were going to re-sign K.J. Wright, Pete Carroll would say what he often always says. Something along the lines of, we're always open to every opportunity. John is always looking into everything. We're always keeping our ears to the ground. We're always seeing what we can take advantage of. Always competing, right? He would say something like that. If there was even a small chance that KJ Wright was coming back, he would just say, we'll see. Basically, keeping the door open. P. Carroll said that he loves KJ. And he does, but that they talked about the future. And K.J. Wright, unfortunately, is not the future. They're focused on moving the defense in a different direction. And while K.J. would be an amazing presence and mentor, particularly for the linebacker room, that definitely has a lot to prove with Jordan Brooks and Cody Barton being the leaders. It's just not enough. You can't bring in K.J. Wright to hold a clipboard, especially somebody of that caliber who means so much to this team. There's going to be constant questions asked about when K.J. is going to play, if he's even going to get a few snaps. And in football terms, when you look at it, K.J. does, does, does not. He does not have a role in this team anymore. Here's why. The Seattle Seahawks are transitioning to a 3-4 defense. Linebackers in that role are asked to do two primary things. They have to be able to rush the passer, and they have to be able to drop in coverage. K.J. Wright is not capable of doing either. All Seahawks fans know how much K.J. struggles in coverage. He just gets burned. He just doesn't have the speed that he used to have, especially against an increasingly faster crop of wide receivers coming up in the NFL. He just does not have it to be able to stay even a little bit in front. He just gets flat out burned in coverage a lot of the times, unless it's a flat route. K.J.'s better at stuffing the run. He's better at attacking screens and just being at the right place in the right time, playing off of the line of scrimmage. Is much more along the lines of what he'd do in a 4-3 defense, right? But, so KJ's not good in coverage. KJ also has never been good at rushing the passer. That's never been a part of his game. It's not been what he's able to do. So you can't bring a linebacker back who can't do either of the primary responsibilities that the linebackers in their new defense will have. As much as you'd love to do it, it just doesn't make sense to pay out money. That's just a wasted roster spot. And this is, after all, it's a business. You hate to put it that way, but you can't that just be giving away a roster 
spot and it'd just be giving away at least a million bucks because you won't you won't be able to even put KJ out on the field. And I personally think that KJ deserves better than that. I think he deserves better than to be a part of a team, but never to really be a part of it. That's not how, at least I, would want to see Seattle greats go down. And KJ went out swinging, at least with the Seahawks. He had his best season, uh, one of his best seasons. And I think that's just the way it should go down. I personally would rather see a player go down and look great than to see a player diminish into nothing. That's always it's always hard to do. Now Seattle will Seattle will always love KJ and he'll always be a part of this team. I I'd really love it if he could take on sort of a role that Cliff Averill has done, even more so than Cam Chancellor. Cliff Averill has gotten himself opportunities to be a part of Seattle Radio. He often does interviews. KJ seems to be taking that path. He's often doing interviews for various, uh, you know, outlets and sort of just giving his thoughts on where the Seahawks are. He recently just did an interview talking about how he thinks Russell Wilson and the Denver Broncos will finish last in the AFC West, which is interesting. I think he will. I think if he can play that role, he can still remain in the hearts and the minds of the Twelves without losing. He sort of diminished his his value on the field. I, th- I think that's probably the best case for him. And I think that he, I think the Seattle Seahawks would love to give him a one-day contract so he can officially retire his jersey whenever he's ready to do, to do that. But I think that is the best direction for KJ, unfortunately. I would love to see KJ back on the field. But at some point, you have to look at the full picture and just say, unfortunately, it doesn't make sense. But... I've been the barrier of bad news for quite some time now. So let's talk about something positive. All right. So I noticed this in a Pete Carroll interview, and this isn't a topic that people have talking about or are wondering about, but Pete Carroll said something that got me wondering, is Pete evolving the way that he thinks about his offensive philosophy? Is he changing his approach with his priorities and the run in the past? Is he going into a more pass-focused offense. I'm sure you guys wondered this when the Seattle Seahawks drafted two pass-protection offensive tackles or pass-protection-oriented offensive tackles. Let's hear a little bit more as Pete Carroll talks about those offensive tackles that they drafted, and I'll give you a key takeaway that I think is a positive for the direction of the Seattle Seahawks franchise. They've they've been working hard at it, and they look very comfortable. They'll get better. I mean, I saw a couple of false, you know, flinches and stuff, but uh, which is really normal. Um, but it's not like I've said. These guys are too good athletically. I mean, they're really comfortable in their bodies and can move, and they're well proportioned, and they're quick, and they can run fast for big guys. It's just not going to be a, a, a big transition, like you know we might think. And I don't think that the experience of being in the offense they've been is going to be a, a detriment at all. I think it's going to. The area of most that we would be concerned about is pass protection, you know, and, and being able to pick up with the speed and all. These guys have had thousands of snaps of, of protected on the edge. And so, uh, and, they, and they knew they had to, you know, the coach put them in that position. That was their style. And the guys coming in were all rushing the passer and all that. So this, that's all adds to, uh, I, I think it's, we're fortunate that they've come through that program. Yes, folks, you're not crazy. You heard Pete Carroll, head coach of the Seattle Seahawks say that the most important thing 
that his offensive tackles could provide was pass protection. Wow. Where was that when Russell Wilson was here? I don't think I've ever heard Pete Carroll say that that was the most important thing. And this leads me to believe that Pete Carroll is changing and sort of evolving his offensive philosophy. I think he's learning more with Shane Waldron being sort of a teaching type of offensive coordinator. I think he's learning more about offenses and really coming to understand the importance of the passing, right? And that, yes, the run game is important, but that this is becoming more and more a passing league and a quarterback-led league. So you have to protect your quarterback at all costs. And I also think that to some extent, it's not it's not just that he's changing his offensive philosophy now. Some people think that the Seattle Seahawks drafted two offensive tackles focused on pass protection just to sort of stick it back to Russell Wilson, right? That he talked about the offensive line and he was vocal about his displeasure with, I think, the resources that sort of had been put into the offensive line up to that point. I think it's less about sticking it to Russ. I actually don't think that that's the reason why all of a sudden now, after 10 years of emphasizing the run more than the pass, now, after losing a franchise quarterback, they are now putting priority towards pass protection. I think it has a lot more to do with one. Like I said, I do think that Pete is optimistic. He's changing his strategy to some extent. I think that's slow, but I do think he's sort of, slowly coming along here but more than anything to me this just says that I think they took Russell for granted I really do I think that it's less about sticking it to Russ and more that because they don't have Russ it's more of a priority than it ever has been before Russell Wilson has been great he's in fact known and famous for getting out of sticky situations you know getting out of spinning spinning moves and making these circus passes and these impromptu plays. When the play breaks down, he's able to sort of save and make a huge play, keep the sticks moving, maybe even get an incredible touchdown. That's what Russ is known for. He's known for being able to escape pressure. pressure. And I think to some extent, that was taken for granted. I think they always knew that because Russell could do that, pass protection was never the top priority. It was a priority they were willing to pay attention to it they didn't throw it to the wayside but they weren't willing to truly invest in it in the same way that they are now because now they don't have that to fall back on I think they used Russ's escapability as a crutch to never have to truly invest in pass protection and to be honest while yes it's good news for the future I think it's also it's also sad It's sad that it took losing a franchise quarterback to really understand the importance of pass protection. And I hope that that's not a mistake that will be made going forward. Pete Carroll has a contract through five years. He signed a five-year extension. Whether you think he'll coach through that whole thing or not, he has. And so on paper, you'd hope that he cannot make the same mistakes with the next, hopefully, they get a franchise quarterback and with the next franchise quarterback that they get a hold of. Well, that's all we have time for today on the next episode of Seahawks 360. I break down the top five toughest rooms. B. Carroll's always talking about competition. So find out who I have. 
beating out the competition and come out on top as I project the starters and depth for the five toughest rooms on the Seahawks roster. Until then, I am your host, Candace Hagens. You can follow me on Twitter at CandaceH901, that's C-A-N-D-A-C-E-H 901. And be sure to follow the show on at Ethos Seahawks, where we look at the Seahawks from every angle, every week. Make sure when you're listening to the podcast to follow us, make sure you share. Share it to your cousins, uncles, everybody, anybody who you know is a Seahawks fan. Make sure they get this great content. And while you're at it, leave a five-star review. I will read all five-star reviews on air. So appreciate that if you could show support. That's all for now. I'm out. And as always, go Hawks.